Today we uh, continue our study in 2 Corinthians, focusing on chapter 11, verse 16, and going through chapter 12 and verse 10. In this section, Paul defends his apostleship. Here's an outline of the material we'll cover. First, we'll start by establishing the context. Then Paul boasts about his sufferings. And we'll answer the question, why? Paul talks about his his vision of heaven, then he explains his thorn of blessing. You don't hear it always put that way. That sounds like a contradiction, but a thorn can be a blessing. And then we'll uh, wrap it up with some lessons, many, many lessons in this uh, very encouraging section of the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we come to you and just ask that you'll clear our minds. I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in us, that I will be his mouthpiece, and uh, truly be able to communicate the word that you have graciously given to us. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a, a quick reminder about the occasion of the book. The wrongs addressed in 1 Corinthians have largely been resolved. Now a year later, heretical Judaizers had moved in and were causing significant problems. The word Judaizer comes from the Greek verb meaning to live according to Jewish customs. The Judaizer's different gospel was that a Christian to truly be right with God, he had to conform to the Mosaic law. Circumcision especially was promoted as necessary for salvation. What was Paul's gospel? By grace you have been saved through faith, and not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that none can boast. Passage from Ephesians, but that was Paul's message, his consistent message. In order to advance their false gospel, the Judaizers had to demolish Paul's credibility and influence, and they're working hard at doing exactly that. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to confront the heresy of the Judaizers and reestablish his credibility as an apostle. As Lev finished up last week, the picture of the Judaizers became clear. They were impressive in person, and they were great speakers, charismatic. They got you. They foolishly boasted about themselves. The Judaizers claimed to be super apostles, that is, new apostles committed to restoring the church to its original teachings. They charged to preach. Their motivation was personal gain. Paul's summary can be found in chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, which reads, For such people are false apostles, Deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. With this context in mind, let's begin today's passage. In the first section, chapter 11, verses 16 through 31, Paul boasts of his sufferings. Paul begins by apologizing for boasting. The text is somewhat challenging, and the message paraphrases it very well. Read the text on the screen as I read the paraphrase. Let me come back to where I started, and don't hold it against me if I continue to sound a little foolish. Or if you'd rather just accept that I'm a fool and let me rant on a little bit, I didn't learn this kind of talk from Christ. Oh no, it's a bad habit I picked up from the three-ring preachers that are so popular these days. 
since you sit there in the judgment seat observing all these shenanigans, you can afford to humor an occasional fool who happens along. You have such admirable tolerance for impostors who rob your freedom, rip you off, steal you blind, put you down, even slap you in the face. I should admit to you, but our stomachs aren't strong enough to tolerate that kind of stuff. That's it. By insisting on fulfilling the law for salvation, the Judaizer impostors took away the Corinthians' freedom and enslaved them to the impossibility of fulfilling the law. And their smooth words and superior attitude allowed them to exact favors and take advantage of them. Next, Paul com compares himself to the Judaizers. In contrast to the Judaizers who bragged about their prowess and their strength, Paul boasted in his weakness because he understood his work was meaningless apart from Christ and that his weakness resulted in glorifying God's grace and the power of his life and ministry. Note, Paul doesn't want to boast, but he does so not for his own glorification as the Judaizers did, but for the sake of strengthening, upbuilding the Corinthians, for the sake of the gospel, and for the glory of God. Completely different motivations between the Judaizers and Paul. Let's begin. Um, I'm going to read, uh, read the text here. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Am I out of my mind to talk like this? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently been flogged more severely and exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews." In danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. That verse 29 there, Paul identifies with the weak from his experiences. He says, yeah, yeah, I understand being weak. And those led into sin. He was very much led into sin, wasn't he, before his conversion? And it was a vision on the way to Damascus that, that he found the light. And he understood what was happening. Paul goes on. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas at the city of Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. And I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. What's the point? The point is that Paul suffered a rather humiliating escape in his basket. Was this done in power? It was done in weakness. 
But what was the result? He was willing to be weak and helpless to further proclaim the gospel. He wasn't worried about power. He was worried about proclaiming the gospel. And he didn't mind being weak to do that. Because Paul's opponents boasted in their spiritual, their spiritual experience as well as ethnic identity. Remember, talk about I'm from Israel, I'm a descendant of Abraham, and so on and so forth. He also felt he had a boast, however foolishly, about his own visions and revelations. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go to the visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me that is warranted but by what I do or say. I know a man. What's really, who is this? Who is this man he's talking about? This is Paul. Why do we know? Because earlier he said, I'm going to be boasting. So why does he do this? He's being humble. Instead of saying, I... What do you think the, the, the uh, Judaizers would have done? Well, this would have been a great credential, wouldn't it? If you are the PR person, you could have said, tonight come to the evening meeting at 7 o'clock. We're going to have Paul come and talk to you, and he's been to heaven and back and lived to tell about it. <laughs> that would be the Judaizer story. What's Paul's story? Hey, I don't want to say any more than I need to, but this is what happened. Very humble approach. The revelation was overwhelming to Paul, so much so he couldn't really talk about the specifics. You think of other passages in Scripture where they could not describe exactly what it was like. That's the situation here, too. Paul couldn't describe, but he knew where he'd gone to. He went to the third heaven. The first heaven is where the birds fly. The second heaven is where the planets and the stars are. What's the third heaven? The abode of God. That's the abode. So he's saying, I was there in the presence of God. The Judaizers had nothing to say. They couldn't say. So Paul has boasted about his sufferings. He boasted about his weakness in being lowered in a basket to escape a city. Then he boasted about his visions and revelations. Now he boasts again about another of his weaknesses, his thorn in the flesh. How could that be? To keep me from being coming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations... There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. So what was the thorn? It wasn't the annoying prick of a rose. It was not. The Greek suggests it was, the word is actually about a stake 
for a shaft. So it's not the annoying prick of a thorn, rather it's the significant pain of a stake or a shaft like a spear. Most suggest that the thorn was a physical problem, perhaps an eye problem, hearing issue, speech impediment, malaria, maybe a mental issue. The Holy Spirit may have deliberately concealed the true identity of thorn so that the principles can be generalized rather than limited to the circumstances related to the exact nature of the thorn. What if it said, well, it's his eyes? Well, we would have said, well, okay, for those who have eye problems, this applies. But it doesn't say that. We don't know what that thorn is. What's your thorn today? Do you have a thorn? What is that? What is that thorn that's irritating you? Who sent the thorn? Well, notice there that God caused the thorn. He did. In this case, he gave permission for Satan to buffet or torment Paul to keep him humble. Messenger, messenger of the word is angels. So in this case, a messenger from Satan, what is that? It's a demon, right? So this demon was oppressing him with whatever this thorn was. So Satan tried to defeat Paul. In a moment, we're going to see some other examples of where Satan tried to defeat a saint. But what did God do? He used it to make him a stronger Christian. That's what he did. So God used Satan's work to accomplish his purpose, and that was to keep Paul humble. Think he would have been proud if he had all these revelations? Why did he have all those revelations? Well, think about all of the experiences he went through, all those weaknesses. Somewhere along the line, might you have needed a revelation? <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. And yet, he had all these revelations, but those same revelations could have made him very proud, conceited, right? And so what does God do? God keeps him humble because he knows that he's going to be most effective if he's humble. So who, who sent the thorn, the continuation here? God may directly discipline, and sometimes he uses other agents. In this case, he used Satan. Consider some other examples. Do you remember the first chapter of Job? Satan's in heaven, and, uh, go, and what, when God says, what have you been doing? He's been going to and fro, and ultimately he says, you know, Job's only a good guy because you protect him. And what does, Satan, what does God say? Have at him. Have at him. Except for his life. What's the result at the end of Job? More prosperity, blessedness. In, in between the first chapter and the 40th chapter, is there some suffering? Huge suffering, isn't there? Huge suffering. Did God have a purpose? He had a purpose. He had a purpose. The hardships that go through you are not random acts. God is sovereign. He's in charge. He loves you. And he wants you to be even better. Consider Peter. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Did Jesus take it away? He didn't take it away, did he? He did not. Simon was tested. And then what's Jesus say? And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So when you get through this, you're going to be able to strengthen your brothers in a way you could never do had you have not walked through that hardship and that trial. So what is God's provision? God's provision is not to take away the thorn, but to provide a solution for dealing with the continuing presence 
of a worthy thorn. The provision is boundless grace. God's grace is what? His unmerited, unearned favor and blessing. That's it. Why are you here this morning? Because of God's grace. Did you deserve anything? No, no. It's God's grace. Your health is God's grace. Your future is God's grace. You're saved by God's grace. We have eternal security because of God's grace. All of that is part of God's grace. And so what does he say to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. All we are as Christians and all we will be is because of God's grace. God's grace is described in scripture as abounding, surpassing, lavished, and represents incomparable riches. As I say those words, it probably calls attention to the scriptures that are there. An excellent summary of God's grace was provided by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8, which states, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. How much? All grace. So that in all things at all times. What's the point? It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. God's grace will take care of you. It will take care of you. In all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Rest in God's grace. Rest in his grace. So note Paul's response to the thorn. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul didn't get mad at God, and he didn't become discouraged. Instead, he rejoiced in the Lord's work in his life. The thorn will keep him humble and dependent on God. Paul understood that apart from the thorn and the weakness it caused, he would never be the, never be the man that God wanted him to be. The thorn was God's blessing. The Judaizers boasted in their personal success. They discredited Paul because of his extensive suffering. No true apostle would have to suffer as Paul did. Paul argued that personal boasting had no place in a Christian's life. Boasting was to be about Christ's work in the Christian's life, and suffering was a very real element of, of the Christian's life and had a distinct place of value in the sanctification process. Suffering was made to make you better. When you, get, when you have surgery and you wake up and the nurse comes in and says, time to walk, is she thinking about your pain or is she thinking about your well-being? When your children misbehave and some discipline is in order, what's your thought? A better child, is it not? And so it is with our father as well. Paul's sufferings embodied the cross of Christ while his endurance amid adversity and with thanksgiving and contentment manifested the resurrection power. Paul's suffering as a possible was the very means God used to reveal his glory. God triumphs amid human weaknesses, embodying the principle of Christ's crucifixion. There are some wonderful scriptural examples in addition to Paul of strength and weakness. Consider Joseph, sold into slavery. What do you think was going through Joseph's mind? Gets to Egypt, works his way up, 
And what happens? He doesn't submit to sin, and he ends up in prison. What ultimately happens? In his weakness, he ultimately ended up saving his family and the nation of Israel. Did he not? And you remember his brother's there, and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus Christ, the God-man in the ultimate humiliation of all time. Remember, he's the creator God, right? the sustainer of the universe. Stands in judgment before his created beings and ends up on the cross. Was there power there? Well, many thought that was a moment of weakness, didn't they? But what was what really happened there? In his death, he conquered death, sin and death, and provided eternal life to all who believe on him. In his weakness, there was great power, huge power, strength in weakness. There are two parallel passages on suffering and hardship I'd like to briefly address. We've got a lot of stuff here. I'm moving through it quickly, but I hope it causes you to just think about more after the service, to open these texts and really look at them more. In Hebrews chapter 12, the subject is the father and his discipline for his children. Here's the points. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Sometimes when you have to tell, well, sometimes when I've had to tell an employee something difficult, I would say, I'm telling you this because I appreciate you very much. That's the point. That's the point. Why does God do, why does he discipline us? Because he wants the best for us. And he knows that sometimes in order to get there, it's going to take some effort. If you're training for athletics, do you do it by sitting in the easy chair? Or do you do it with strained muscles? Well, there's a limit. But still, you know the concept. We talked about it in medicine. We talked about it in athletics. How do you study to show yourself approved? By putting the Bible under your pillow? <laughs> no, it takes work. It takes work to get there. That's the point. Endure hardship as discipline, says the text. No discipline. What does that mean? You're not a son. You're not a son because a father who loves his sons will discipline his sons. Discipline is painful. That's what the text says. Was the thorn painful for Paul? It was. He asked three times for it to be removed. It hurt. It hurt. Discipline is painful. God disciplines us for, for our good that we may share in his holiness and the harvest is righteousness and peace. That's what it is. So there's a whole point in this. And one more to look at. And this parallel passage is John 15. Here, and you remember this is the vine keeper. And what does it say? The father is the vine keeper. And you're, as a Christian, you're one of those branches. And what does the vine keeper do? He prunes the branch. You think pruning is going to be easy on you? No, it's not. It's going to hurt to have pieces cut off. But what's the purpose? That you might be even more fruitful. That's the point. That's the point. 
So here's three passages to consider. We looked in detail at 2 Corinthians, but there's also this parallel passage in Hebrews and in John 15. Well, this doesn't follow very good, um, you know, preaching style because this is just the first page of the lessons. But that's okay. We're going to kind of march through them. So we started, judge the message, not the messenger. What did the Corinthians do? They were enamored by the Judaizers. They were taken by them. They were impressive people. Their message was no good. Consider the message. It's true for all of us in our relationships with one another. Sometimes people who don't appear to be much of anything happen to be quite wise. Don't be foolish. The only legitimate boasting is in the Lord. Do you have any reason to boast this morning? We went back to it's only because of God's grace, right? It's what God does through us that counts. Third, Christians should expect suffering. Don't have to say a lot about that. We've seen it in these texts. Suffering hurts. Don't be surprised when it hurts. Suffering's for our benefit. Consider what James says. Consider it pure joy. Do you, do you consider it pure joy? i got to keep reading that text. Really? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything, says James. What's for our benefit? We already saw righteousness and peace and more fruit. The wonderful blessings of thorns. The wonderful blessings of hardships. God uses suffering to humble his children. So what's so great about humility? It's huge. It's huge. There's probably not a virtue that's more important in Christian life than humility. Christ is the perfect example of humility, isn't he? What's the opposite of humility? Pride. Pride. In our study in the attributes of God, we keep talking about putting ourselves where God should be. Pride, pride, arrogance. Displacing the rightful king of our lives, God. Humility. What does Philippians 2 say about Christ? Did not think himself equal to God. Did not think himself equal. What do you see him doing in his earthly ministry? Trying very hard to do exactly what the Father has in mind did not consider himself equal. God may not take away our suffering. He might. Paul asked three times. No problem. But sometimes the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Okay. All right. Then like Paul, are you going to rejoice in it? Okay. I'm excited about that. So here's the point. When hardships comes your way, then maybe it's time to say, Lord, what do you have me learn from this? Maybe that's the right approach, rather than say, I can't believe you did this to me. And your timing stinks. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> He's our loving Heavenly Father. God always provides abundant grace. God uses suffering to display His power. And for the Christian, there is strength in weakness. As a closing prayer, I'd like to play a hymn of praise by Paul Sandberg that captures the essence of today's message. Amazing. 
Amen. Amen.